Hello and welcome to Design in an Age of Crisis, a new mini-series from Chatham House and the London Design Biennale on the Undercurrents podcast feed. I'm Anna Yang, Acting Executive Director of the Hoffman Centre for Sustainable Resource Economy at Chatham House. And over the course of this week, I'll be exploring the role of design can play in solving the challenges facing our world as a part of the launch of our international call for radical design solutions. On July 22, 2020, London Design Biennale and Chatham House launched an open call inviting radical design solutions from the world's design community, the public, and young people. This open call hopes to harness the creativity that comes from crisis across four areas, health, environment, society, and work. And you can submit ideas until 31st of August, 2020. Today, I'll be speaking with Bruce Daisley and Dr. Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg to ask how design can make the place we live be both good for the environment and people, and how our job can benefit us and our society. Bruce Daisley is the former vice president for Twitter in Europe, the Middle East and Africa. Bruce is now a best-selling author of The Joy of Work and the creator of the hit podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, making him one of the most respected thought leaders on the subject of workplace culture and the future of work. Bruce joined our discussion on what issues in work we want designers to tackle. Dr. Alexandra Daisy Ginsberg is an artist examining our fraught relationships with nature and technology. Through artworks, writing, and curatorial projects, Daisy's work explores subjects as diverse as artificial intelligence, exobiology, synthetic biology, conservation, biodiversity, and evolution, as she investigates the human impulse to better the world. Daisy joined our discussion on the role of design in improving the environment and the places we live. So Bruce and Daisy, what role could design play in providing solutions to global issues? Well, I think, you know, especially at the moment we're in right now, I think design and design thinking can be incredibly helpful for us to take stock of where we are, to appraise what we need and to develop and iterate from that. A lot of the way that we've worked has been governed by tradition and habit. A lot of us go to work and have gone to work and some of the norms of the, the way that we're working haven't really been re-evaluated, especially in the context of so much technological change in the last 20 years, really. Anyone who's been in the world of work more than 20 years will remember and sort of reflect embarrassedly how unsophisticated it was when they first entered the world of work and recollecting to younger workers how little technology was around them. And now, of course, you know, that's been transformed. And yet we've not really gone through a reappraisal of the needs, the requirements, the work that we're doing. And I think bringing that design thinking to bear and sort of appraising what we can actually accomplish, it seems incredibly timely right now. I think it's really useful to ask about the role of or the relationship between design and solutions and quite what we expect from design. 
I think there's always within the design community a sort of expectation that designers solve problems and that design can make the world better and not necessarily a questioning of what other things come to play. So the the idea that design designers can be responsible for massive change, I think, is overambitious. Rather, our role as uh, individual citizens, as governments, policymakers, all of this puts the constraints around what we design. Mm. And to think of design as something separate is maybe problematic and and also not to recognise the role of design in the current crisis, in the world that we've built around us. So recognising how design has been in service to certain modes of capital, of extraction and ways of living and then saying, well, if we want to do this differently, can designers really solve this? Can designers come up with the solutions or is it about all of us asking for change, demanding change, making that change, and then design responding to those particular new constraints. We can think of design as a process of making change, sort of changing existing circumstances to preferred ones, but to expect sort of design in a vacuum to be able to come up with solutions and designers to be responsible for those solutions, I think, puts too much pressure on designers and also not enough responsibility on the rest of us. Not by us, I include designers, but I mean societies. So what design ideas do you think has changed the world? A design idea that changed the world, I would say the bicycle. It probably wasn't thought of as design at the time. It was an invention, but it's probably one of the most radical pieces of innovation that propelled us from one way of living to another way of living, changing the way cities were structured, changing the way people commuted, all these other things. And it remains, even as an old invention, one of the most radical objects, I think. And it's super interesting to think about how it hasn't really changed. And, you know, so much else in our lives may feel like it's changed, but actually some of the really core things that can affect our quality of life are old inventions and just absolute classics of ingenuity. Yeah, I think bicycle definitely stood the test of time. What about you, Bruce? Yeah, I, I took a long sort of think about this. And, you know, the thing for me, I, and, and I, I think I thought about it specifically with regards to where we are now and us trying to take an idea that's changed the world, but then also recognise that sometimes the ideas that have changed the world in the past become the prisons that we find ourselves in right now. And, and mm. the idea for me was the calendar, the, the schedule, the, the way that we configure time, because I suspect a lot of us right now are living in the world dissected into lots of little squares that we schedule ourselves and we conform ourselves. And one of the interesting things that I've really found myself trying to come to terms with and and sort of wrestle with is the idea of asynchronous working rather than synchronous working. So if you think that the, the way that we're thinking about right now is so heavily confined by those calendars, those schedules, and the notion that we all need to be coordinating ourselves using that that grid against other people. It seems that the organisations who are pressing forward right now and rethinking how they can be productive, creative and break new ground are the ones who are saying the calendar, that that idea, that design concept that has been familiar with us with, throughout our lives is actually the constraint that's holding us back. And so you see a lot of organisations trying to push against synchrony, saying, mm. let's try and do our work 
whenever we f- we find inspiration hits us. And so that for me was the interesting one because the calendar has been so helpful and the way that we've segmented time has been so incredibly potent as an idea. But I, I've really been taken with the notion that maybe that's one of the things holding us back right now. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, and you know, it, for example, I think, you know, if we brought a child's mind, the inquisitive nature of a child where they say why, I think a lot of us probably, or a lot of people right now are finding themselves looking longingly out of the window at the glory of the British summer and the best part of the, the summer day is passing them by and questioning why they're bound to their computer or they're locked in a Zoom meeting in, in the middle of the day when they would willingly do, they would trade those two hours of beautiful sunshine for working in the evenings. And, and I think it forces us to actually think, why are we doing things like this? And, you know, yeah. to, to bring that child's inquisitive mind, a child saying, why can't you go out now when it's nice? I think that's where, to some extent, the calendar synchrony is potentially holding us hostage to some extent. That kind of is a really good segue to one of the questions that we have, which is of what the COVID-19 pandemic, well, it changed work, it changed our relationship with work. So in your view, bringing that creative mindset or maybe getting rid of some of the calendar constraints, what do you think working life will look after COVID-19? To, to my mind, it'll be, it'll remain polarised and, and fragmented where there are no doubt people who are pushing to to do things in a more enlightened way and the the gravitational pull of tradition and the things that we've learned will mean that that isn't distributed evenly Mm. across everyone. I think, you know, it it is remarkable what we've witnessed. Firstly, I think almost every organisation from the most enlightened to probably some of the most conservative have surprised themselves with how quickly they were able to mobilize. Plans could be deployed and executed in seven days. You know, I spoke to a local council who I think by their very nature sort of often feel embarrassed in how slow they move to things. And they reacted with such alacrity in terms of kitting out their teams. It's been this moment of reminding everyone of the capabilities of us when we we move to things. You know, so many organisations feel like they've got this corporate constipation where everything takes a long time. They move at this slow speed. And I think we've all been shown that actually all humans have got an innate ability to respond quickly when the imperative's there. So I would hope that that is like an empowering provocation where we, we start thinking about how we can do things differently. I largely believe that the office as we knew it has gone. There's been such a forced reappraisal. I think we have found ourselves in a situation now where the idea of doing a commute to one place every day for almost every organisation will be something that no longer feels necessary. And because of that, I suspect organisations will start reappraising what footprint they need for corporate space, asking themselves with a far clearer blanker sheet of paper, what is the office actually for? So it's a forced moment of reappraisal that I think as a result, because it's been so forced, will definitely be far more wide reaching than it otherwise would have been. Bruce, I know that you were in the work steering group. Do you have a view on like, what is the almost like interplay between work and environment? 
And as you're thinking, you know, all you think about is the future of work and then we kind of having a different dynamic. We're moving to a different dynamic. How can design shape or be more cohesive, help sort of deliver good outcomes for both future of work and also sort of a greener life? Yeah, I, I think there's so many moving parts that it's hard to take stock. You know, one of the interesting things I think that comes from the disruption we're in, where organisations as as varied as the London Council I mentioned, to Barclays Bank, to Morgan Stanley, have all come out and said they don't believe bringing people into the office every day is the way of the future. And so the consequence of that that we have to wrestle with is a number of things. Firstly, there's going to be a massive surplus of commercial real estate. That you know, it's, it's really fascinating to look at the commercial real estate business because they are largely in the situation at the moment where they're signaling that they believe that the office is alive and well and it just needs a bit of reconfiguring. But there was one report published in The Economist about four weeks ago suggesting that if the demand for commercial real estate falls 10% per year in the next few years, office space will halve in price. And so, you know, we reach firstly a reappraisal which is could we see that some of these business districts could we see some of our city centers being used partly to solve the housing crisis that we've got and you can almost conceive if you sort of find yourself meandering a little you can almost conceive that city centers and business districts might give way to some loft living that maybe younger people or students or artists goodness artists living in city centers again imagine such a thing but you could imagine that you know this vibrancy might be brought back to our metropolitan areas on the flip side you could see i I was really taken with a french architect who's probably far more famous than i realized cedric price who sort of talked about different stages of cities and you know talking about you you evolve through different stages and one of the stages he talks about is he uses the metaphor of cities as eggs and rather than give you all the different eggs he talks about. But the, the most recent one is that cities are fried eggs where you have sort of the dense business centre in the middle, but then the sort of slightly more spread out egg white around the suburban fringes of cities. And he talks about ultimately cities end up as scrambled eggs where business districts sit side by side with residential areas. And, you know, the idea, I think the, the French mayor talks about the 15-minute the city where you can sort of live and, and get everything you want in these small areas. And I think it, it does force a reappraisal for our relationship with where we live and work. One of the things I have seen is that if we are going to forge a degree of separation between work life and home life, then maybe the trend we're heading towards for some people is a work near home trend rather than a work at home trend. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. There's so many balls in the air that we're, we're just trying to juggle with at the moment. It's very difficult to know what will be the, the final destination that we end up in. I love the concept of uh, cities as scrambled eggs. And I actually think that there is the design element and then also Daisy, to hear your view on how can design almost help reinforce, support that process and then enhance the environment issues so that making our greener lifestyle the easier choice? I think it's absolutely imperative that design has to (laughs) take stock of what it's been doing. Design, and I say design in this nebulous way, I mean designers who are often in service to the businesses they work for or the clients they're working for. 
and to think more holistically. So the moment we're thinking about design a product and you think about where am I going to get the packaging? How am I going to make the packaging? And then how do I sell this thing? And that's how businesses work. The designer doesn't have the responsibility to think about the impact of that packaging. But a lot of those decisions actually fit into the business model and fit into policy and legislation around what happens to that packaging. So we can imagine you know, design solutions that are better or incrementally better. But I'm much more interested in this radical imagining and saying, you know, what have we done wrong? I mean, for example, we were sent a pasta home delivery gift by a friend and it's a meal that came, everything in tiny little plastic boxes. And it's like, this should actually be illegal. And I've seen it advertised on the side of a bus when I was in London this week. And I was like, this is really, really problematic because yes, you can cook your pasta meal at home because the restaurant is closed and you can feel like you're cooking, but it's not solving all the stuff around it. The problem why people don't have time to make healthy food for themselves, it's not solving, why can't they get the food locally? Why are we all relying on home delivery services like Amazon that are sort of clumping together into monopolies of scale? And actually, how do we think about things in a much bigger scale? And then what you need then is you need businesses and designers and individuals and people to be supported in making those choices. So one way to do it is to come up with radical new ways of doing it and then try and make those things happen. But in a way, I think that's what's useful about thinking about this zooming out rather than saying, how do we tweak and substitute in and solve individual things? Instead say, what is it that we want? And that process of asking what we want, like what is the ideal and then how do we get there is a potentially an easier way to grasp the enormity of the task because the way we're living isn't working and this collapse is evidence that disease can spread fast the way we're living that we've been encroaching on natural habitats that diseases can jump easily that there's something wrong that so many people are experiencing such hardship through this there's something wrong with how we've set everything up I think you touch on something which is one of the issues I want to talk about, which one is incremental change and radical change that we are we need to sort of completely rethink the environment, work, how businesses are designed, health and society, even the fairness angle of this. And so in this initiative that we're doing with the Chatham House and the design Biennale is doing, what is it that captured your imagination? when you agreed to join this and also when you joined in the steering group, what stuck with you? Well, for me, it was the opportunity to communicate some of the, so, you know, throughout this crisis, I've been so talking to people, getting emails from people saying, how do you imagine a better world out of this? And, you know, I wrote my PhD about the idea of better. I don't know what a better world looks like because there isn't one better world. It's better for each of us. And I've tracked how different imaginations of better get encoded into the things that we make, whether it's in imagining sort of an open source future that affects the kinds of services that are available, or are we imagining some kind of sort of radical sustainability that will really affect if I can go and buy fast fashion, for example, or other kinds of visions. But you know, if you're purely in the capitalistic mode, it's it's about making money which supports jobs, which supports the NHS. So those are all visions of what a better future might look like that get encoded into the things that we go and spend our money on. 
I'm interested in how do we come up with alternatives. Design does not absolutely have to be coupled to purchasing things. There's lots of examples of design which is about different sets of values. So there's a wonderful initiative called Fixperts where designers are tasked with helping someone with a problem and designing a solution to that problem for them. And it's not a thing that's bought or sold. It's, It's a kind of gift economy. So I'm excited whether this platform, by proposing or creating a platform for for radical suggestions, can actually get people excited about pinning down some of those values, saying this is actually what I want to see. If I have a blank page and I can imagine anything, this is what I think we should be striving towards. And then how do we start to collect those visions together? Because at the moment, we're in dire risk of just recreating the world that we already had but worse and we're on the precipice of enormous environmental collapse and we we can't continue as we were so for me this was an opportunity to actually get other people excited about thinking about what really pinning it down what they want that is sort of what got me really excited about as from a Chatham House perspective the joint forces with the London Design Biennale team is really to create opportunity for us to imagine something completely radically different to what we have today. So it's absolutely, you know, we're in the same mindset. What about you, Bruce? What got you sort of interested, what captured you? I think it's that shared sense, exactly that. It's, It's the shared sense of the inspiration we can get from witnessing other people tackling these almost universal challenges and seeing the the solutions they come up with. To some extent, when I, when I started with the talking about the calendar at the start, you know, we, we consider some things to be non-negotiables. We don't even question them. And so I'm almost certain, I think Daisy mentions a degree of pessimism that, you know, we, we could easily return to making the same mistakes. But I think these moments of celebration and the, the reason why I wanted to get involved in this is that shining a light into the way that we can do some of these things in a a different, more enlightened way is really striking. I, I saw one organization just, you know, as, as a point of tangential illustration, I saw one organization, I was looking into companies that just work remotely all the time. And actually, look, you know, I'm a big advocate. I think we get so much more of our energy from being around other people than we recognize. That You know, I I do feel that this is one of the invisible consequences that 15 weeks into this experiment, we're actually missing some of the, that we love empathizing and we, we create empathy by being around people. But I was really struck with one organization that has been long term remote work. And they were just more intentional in the way they were, they were designing their culture. So they were recognizing that being around people and forging links with other people seems to be an important component of us feeling an affinity and an identity, a shared identity with them. But they said, we wonder if we could do it in a different way. And so I think a lot of us have found ourselves getting rose-tinted perspectives on what the office was good at and how enjoyable it was in the last few weeks. You know, we, we forget the fact we spent a lot of time sitting at our desks, frowning into our laptops, doing emails, and we were treating the, the office as like it was this wonderful carnival open plan savannah filled with like it was like a a marrakesh market of people trading ideas with each other anyway i I saw this one organization and they said we believe that the old relationship with work was that you spent 11 months a year together and one month a year away from each other we wonder if it might be better if we spent 11 months a year away from each other and one month a year together And, and what they said is that we're going to get everyone together once a quarter for a week 
So that was it. That was the way they did it. You know, everyone gets, from their perspective, the opportunity to get into sort of this deep work, this concentrated escape interruptions. But we recognize that we're going to almost have to create these fiestas of people getting together and re-energizing each other. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. It feels like it's learned more from where web communities and, and communities of passion and communities of, of shared interests, where those communities have sort of celebrated meetup culture. They've celebrated getting together and creating moments of shared experience, but recognizing that you can't do it all the time. And I was just really struck with when we are more intentional, when we do set about thinking what's the problem we're trying to solve, some of the solutions are so different. And I guess, you know, I find the the divergence in the solutions that people are going to come up with one of the most inspiring opportunities right now. There's also an opportunity at being a global platform, the ambition for a global platform, to recognise who's been doing the design in the past and which groups of people. And we could say it's overwhelmingly probably white, probably male, and probably people of privilege. So how can a platform like this actually reach other people? I think it's incredibly important to note that while everyone in the world, is, or almost everyone in the world, billions of people in the world have been going through an experience at the same time, but we have not been going through the same experience. And how can we get people who wouldn't normally participate in a design competition or design platform to actually think this is also for you? And this is an opportunity to say something in a different way to the other mechanisms that we have to make our voices heard. And that to me is really important. Open up the platform of who is getting to, to offer their imagination for how the world could be or should be. And so from your view, what kind of ideas, radical thinking, processes, places that you might want to see coming out of this initiative? I hope that we're swept away by the lack of constraint that's, that's most inspiring to me. So it's, it's almost, as Daisy mentioned before, you know, it's some of the start point, the perspectives that shaped a lot of the things that have got us here have almost exclusively come from one cohort of individuals. And, and it's the fact that hopefully we're going to see such a span of alternatives and disruptions to that that I'm most inspired by but so I don't necessarily want to to prejudge what might come back I would love to see things that maybe we wouldn't think of as design because they're not necessarily products or services or things that get sold so you know is it a way to get people growing their own vegetables or is it an alternative way to access fresh food which then trickles down to lots of different aspects of our lives is it community volunteering programs are they are they things that might we might not think of as design but are very much about changing our circumstances to preferred ones and I really hope that we get this radical ideas that the people who tend to be doing the designing aren't you know able in their day jobs to come up with so this is a sort of open slate in a way for Mm. for ways to improve lives for all humans and all species and the planet when we talk about building back better how we work how sustainable our lifestyle should be how do you think our society will change in the long term on these fronts you can bring up 
positive, optimistic outlook, or you can have a more pessimistic outlook or neutral, both on work and environment. The problem with being an optimist is that when you're an optimist, <laughs> and I'm an optimist, I'm a miserable optimist. That's what I'll say. Everyone who met me would say, bloody hell, he's miserable. But um, I'm, a, I'm an optimist. But when you're an optimist, the problem is everything you see that comes along, you see as a signal that things are about to get remarkably better. And so, you know, I spend my whole time sort of looking at the opportunity presented by like the transformational improvement in, in economy of solar power right now, or, you know, us reappraising how much we need to travel, how much we need to buy. I'm, I'm sort of, or, you know, there, there seems to be a singular moment in social justice that is forcing reappraisal and is coincidentally falling on an American election year. So, you know, I, I sort of see all these signals for hope and change. I do believe that there has been something fundamental. You know, some of the norms that we considered that weren't there for questioning. The idea that millions of us would cram onto public transport every day and travel for the average British commute time is 74 minutes. So the fact that we would spend all these wasteful hours every day seemed just like a non-negotiable. And I think the reason why this optimist believes that this might be a moment where something fundamental has changed is that I do believe that the scales have dropped from our eyes to some extent, where for the first time, questioning, does this have to be the way, seems like it's reached a, a consensus where people are like, maybe it doesn't. So I think, you know, hopefully there is a singular moment where all these things have just coincidentally fallen together. I think I choose to be an optimist. So that's something I've learned from listening to a wonderful podcast called Outrage and Optimism, which is a really interesting podcast because it's about stubborn optimism and it's about the choice to be optimistic in the face of, of crisis. And I would say I'm pessimistic about how this is going to pan out and I'm extremely alarmed for our shared future. But the only choice is to be hopeful. And I think humans are hopeful animals. We get out of bed because we imagine things could be otherwise, even when things are terrible. And I think it's really important to remember that you don't, you can be an optimist by choice. So for me, the issue with this build back better slogan is coming back to this word of better is what are we building back to? And are we building forward rather? You know, do we want to go back to where we were? And instead really to defining what it is, you know, if it is, specific aims that we aren't going to commute. We are all going to have to travel less. We have to design with other species and planetary concerns in mind for every single thing that we make and ship. Then mm. that makes me feel optimistic that we can actually do something differently. But I see a world on fire and I see an, you know, the Arctic on fire and I'm extremely alarmed that we need to be far more forceful in our rhetoric and in our actions, especially. So I cling to optimism, but it's hard work, I think. And, and it's work we have to do. Thank you both. I think it is, I mean, for us who work on environment change, climate change issue, we have to be optimistic. Otherwise we're not gonna get out of bed, right? We have to be alarmist. 
uh, and then also at the same time think that something different through our work, through connecting, making change happen, either through policy or solutions, different kind of business models, a different kind of future, a different outcome is possible. So I, I love this sort of, you both are simultaneously a little bit pessimistic, well, not a little, you know, <laughs> pessimistic about the future, but also optimistic about the possibility of the outcome. And I do think that what COVID-19 has created is this opportunity for us to identify cracks in the system of something that no longer work. And whether we can, as change agents, kind of go into these cracks and open these cracks and challenge some pretty fundamental stuff about how we work or how we, our relationship with the environment. With that, I think we have reached the end of this conversation. Thank you both. Thank you so Thank much you. for inviting me. Thank you. It's great to talk. That's it for this episode. In the next episode, I'll be joined by Professor Dame Sally Davies, former Chief Medical Officer for England, along with Kelly Doran, architect at Mass Design Group, and Charlene Prempe, founder of A Vibe Called Tech, to consider how can design make staying healthy be easier for everyone and how can design empower everyone. You can submit ideas to the open call until 31st of August 2020. A number of ideas will be selected for our online exhibition, Design in an Age of Crisis, from September 2020. Ideas may also be exhibited at the London Design Biennale in June 2021. Chatham House will consider how some of the ideas might be turned into a reality. If you want to find out more and submit an idea to the open call, visit londondesignbiennale.com forward slash open call. You can also find us on social media through Twitter handles at London Design Biennale and at Chatham House or through the hashtag Design Resonance. Thanks for listening. <laughs>